Thank you, Rose. Well, you've got the gist by now that we're in a season of saints and remembrance. And I want mainly this morning to turn to that uh, Hebrews passage in the first couple of verses if you want to know where we're going over the next 15 minutes or so. Therefore, begins the writer. And whenever you start therefore, and Paul does it, though this is not Paul, what they're telling you is that you, uh, you're starting here, but you can't start here. You need to just look at what's gone before. What is the therefore connecting you to? Well, what's the therefore here? The whole of Hebrews chapter 11, this great passage of Scripture, which is about the story of inspiring heroes of faith. By faith, Noah... And you think of Noah who spent all those years patiently preparing for something he felt the Lord was giving him. And I look at Noah and I think, oh Lord, give me patience to plan and believe that this will be your promise. By faith, says the writer Abraham, who did as God told him, and I listen and I remember Abraham, and I say, Lord, give me a belief and a faith and a trust that I see in the stories of the life of Abraham. By faith, Moses, obedient, reluctant at first, but then used powerfully in God's purposes, to whom God gave the law, loyal and reliant. Lord, make me like Moses. The covenant people, you see, which starts narrowly through these great patriarchs, but then broadens out and broadens out and broadens out until the writer, whoever they were, until the writer says to this group of ordinary unknown Christians, because we've got no real clue who the Hebrews were, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And suddenly the writer has put them in that river, that confluence of grace that goes all the way through these great, glorious, historic figures and suddenly says, and you too. And if that's true, we could add another sentence just at this point. In the same way, therefore, we... Every single one of us here are included in this ordinary, extraordinary, chosen family of God. We are the latest generation of faith. And these heroes of the faith and the many unsung heroes of the faith are our relatives. Sometimes we're tempted to regard faith in purely personal terms. It's our faith, and no one's quite wrestled with the faith like we are wrestling with it at the moment. It's our hang-up, and no one else has had a hang-up like it in the world. It's our temptation, and nobody can be tempted like we are. And all you've got to do is begin to read the book of the saints of God 
and suddenly they say to you, oh no, we've been there. Listen to what we say about it. It's a bit like the young mum taking a baby to your 91-year-old great-grandmother and spending an hour with them and coming out and saying somewhat surprisedly, she knows a bit about raising children, doesn't she? It's a covenant thing as well as a personal thing, our faith. We are people of a covenant and sometimes we just pause to remember who we are and whose we are. And it's in that sense that this talk of a cloud of witnesses takes place in Hebrews chapter 12. Cloud of witnesses who cheer us on our way. That's definitely the image given by the writer. They're seen as enthusiastic spectators. Uh, we're privileged because we watch the London Marathon go right past our door. In fact, we can never quite work out in this church whether the London Marathon is just a glory because it goes right past our door or just a real pain because nobody can get into church. We really do need to think one year about whether or not we abandon church or have a 10-minute service earlier and then take about a 1,000 bottles of water, stand outside there and just sing hymns and give water out for an hour and a half. It might be a better thing to do. What do you think? Like great worthies of past ages, what are they there to do? The image is that like people stand up the streets of London as the marathon runners go past, some of them old, some of them young, passing the 14-mile mark, some of them panting, some of them looking like they've just set off. And there's people in the crowd as they see them and they say, come on! These great people of God, we can feel so distant from them. What have we really got to do with Moses and Miriam and Isaiah? But then you stop and you think, well, they were only ordinary people given over to the extraordinary transformation that God can do. And for all their greatness, I dare say that they look the same shape in the shower. And they turn to us, this host going back through time. And they say, run the race. You can do it. And very often in this context, I hear the encouragers of my own faith. The family members, the old Christians in the church in which you were growing up. Instrumental in our faith, saying, of course you can who in some cases when you said, I, I feel like God might want me to be a preacher and didn't fall off the chair laughing. God loves you. You're the child of a king. I'm praying for you. Run the race. You can do it. I hear my old minister saying, the Lord will be your strength. And I hear the Holy Spirit in all that saying, they're right. Yes, you can do it. But let's just pause a moment. 
They don't say you can do it for something to say. There'll be people out there in the London Marathon who know that if their relative gets beyond the 17-mile mark, they've run further than any time else in their life. And what they're doing when they shout, you can do it, is think, stroll on, I hope they make it more than 17 miles this time. Now, when the cloud of witnesses say you can do it, they know what they're talking about. And what they're talking about is that they themselves are witnesses to the keeping and the power of God's goodness. When I'm reading Wesley and I hear him say on his deathbed, the best of all is God is with us. He knows. Martyrs of faith talk about the Lord never leaving or deserting them. And they say God is good and God is to be trusted. You can do it. We testify to God's keeping and goodness. Run the race. And then the third thing they say is, you can do it because God is good. This cloud of witnesses also say to us, if we listen very carefully, it's worth it. We hear Mother Julian of Norwich say, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Because at the end of this long race we bear testimony not only to the goodness of God but to the fact that it's worth it now listen to it listen to this those of us and I suspect this includes most of us in this room those of us who have in our lives known times of tragedy or who have experienced sadness, who have been at some times in their life at the end of their tethers, who have even reached perhaps from time to time a point of doubt at the point of living, who have been broken by what has happened to those they love and sometimes themselves. These brothers and sisters of faith, your brothers and sisters in faith, say to you, it's worth it. You can do it. Run the race. It isn't a sprint. That's why a marathon image comes to mind. This is not the bolt. You do have to keep moving, even if at times you move more slowly and more painfully than other people. It isn't a sprint, it is more like a marathon, but it does have an end. So you're not asked in the reading to just persevere and stay where you are and grit your teeth. You're asked to run the race, even though it's a long one. Move onwards, head towards the goal, and therefore the writer, not for the first time in the New Testament, employs this image of the runner of a race. 
So shed weight, he says. And the text seems to suggest three related images that I just want to play with very quickly. First, he said, shed weights. Now, the thing about weights is, especially when you're running, is that they drag you down. If you're a pretty good athlete, you'll see some people with a rucksack on their back that they put weights on so that they get stronger as they run. They really are the loop-de-loops. But for most people, what they do is, if you're a cyclist, you'll spend another 1,200 quid removing five and a half ounces from your bike that's underneath you that you've got to power. Why on earth do you part with that amount of money, I say to them? It'll knock me 43 seconds off my 10K time, they say. Weights slow things down. And so this image, because it always has done, this image that we've got is what's slowing you down in the race? We're told often that we decide what level of home we want to take with us whenever we go on a journey. From bivouac to motorhome. It's a salutary to think uh, as I go away on holiday can I fit everything I want to take on this holiday with what EasyJet will give me in hand luggage? Or am I going to spend another 40 quid and then Helen will say to me, you're only going for 12 hours, you can manage. What do we take with us that drags us down because it's weight? I know some folk who moved house many years ago and then moved house again many years after that and got round to emptying the loft space where they found boxes of stuff that they brought from the previous house that they packed up that they never opened. <laughs> so have you. <laughs> and this particular couple who were Methodist ministers moving, they decided on something very, very brave. They said, we're not going to even open them up. They're going to the charity shop, whatever's in them they can find. Why? Because whatever's in them, we haven't needed for this number of years. We can do without them. The second image that the person gives who's writing this text for us is not just weights that load you down, they refer to sins that cling. Before my feet got bad, I remember going on a walking week with a couple of friends, and it had been raining and raining and raining, and we were just north of York heading for Whitby, and we walked through several fields that were just absolutely waterlogged. And we had to stop about every 30 paces because the mud, which was about that thick, not only did you sink in it, so you had to keep pulling your feet, but every time you pulled your feet, you got another one and a half pounds of mud on your boots. And we had to keep going to the side and finding stones to get. And the person I was with said, do you know, I've never understood what sins that cloy in that hymn meant, but I do now. Silly story. There was a man who'd worked all his life and saved all his money. He was an absolute miser. He loved money more than just about everything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, Now listen, when I die, I want you to take all my money and place it in the casket with me. I want to take my life money 
to the afterlife with me and he persuaded her. I don't think I ever managed to persuade my wife of this, but he persuaded her to promise him with all her heart that when he died, she'd put all the money in the casket with him. Well, needless to say, he did die. And he was stretched out in the casket and his wife sitting there, dressed in black next to her closest friend. And they got to the point uh, where the ceremony, just as the undertakers are about to close the casket, and his wife says, just a moment, she walks there with a shoebox and she says a prayer and puts the shoebox into the casket with her late husband and they lock the casket down. She walks back to a friend in the service. My friend says, I hope you're not stupid enough to put all that money in the casket. She said, yeah, I promised him. I'm a good Christian woman. I don't lie. I promised him that I was going to put that money in that casket. Do you mean to tell me you've put every dollar you own in there with him? Sure did. Got it all together, I put it into my account, and I've written him a check. <laughs> what are the, we hear it all the time, but what are the things that cling to us so that we actually believe we can take them with us? And thirdly, if there's weights that hold you down and if there's sins that cling and cloy, the writer says, turn away from distractions. And all of us, it will be different for us, but all of us will have those things that it, we're easy to, they're easy to ignore. And then other things that they'll just come sideways into our vision and we'll go like this. Our grandson has been to visit us this, this week. It was a real joy. We, we, he was with us, unusually, for about 36 hours. And one of the things that you know very quickly about a grandson who's 16 months old and just started walking is that they have an attention span of about 0.6 seconds. So you hold out a toy, and he toddles towards it and takes the toy, turns around, sees something else, drops it and goes. What is it when we get to be adults that's the thing that... Whoa. Because seriously, some experts suggest that at any point in time, one-third of us adults are out of control with something that can distract us sometimes to death. It can be eating or drinking or sex or pornography or lust or television or computer games or whatever. But the thing that they have in common is that for a time in your life, you're not controlling them, they're controlling you. And the writer here says, anything that weighs you down, anything that clings, Anything that distracts you from the path, the path of the race, do away with it. So what are the weights we need to shed, the sins, uh, the sins that are making us wind-resistant to the move of the Spirit? What are distractions that cause us from stop cause us to stop running and wander somewhere or take our eyes off the goal. 
And the interesting thing about this passage is that the writer suggests that we can do that. He doesn't write, if it's a he, as if it's, um, if you have super strength on Tuesday, you might be able to distract yourself from this. It, it is just, turn away, remove yourself from things that cling, run the race. Now, how are we expected to do that? And the answer in the text is provided there, keep your eyes on Jesus. Look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus who has run the race. Jesus who has endured the cross. Jesus who has defeated sin. Jesus who runs the race and even for him as he runs it, there is a joy that stands before him and says, follow here and there will be joy for you too. In the ancient ritual of baptism, which I guess is the subject of my PhD I know more about than is humanly good for any soul on earth. Right from the early time of the end of the first century, there was, besides the administration of water, one thing that characterized all the baptisms of all your great-grandparents going right back to the time of the apostles. And it was two questions. And it's almost taken from the image of this passage. And we still say them today. Next time we have the baptism of an infant in two or three weeks' time, we'll say something like this. Do you turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil? I do. Do you turn to Christ? Because a move away from one thing to something else gets you nowhere. But a move away from these things to the one who is the perfecter of faith is a real move and a real change of direction. And one movement makes the other possible. I can't find the strength to tear myself away from the things that cling to me. I can't resist the things that I'm so easily distracted about unless I've got my eyes fixed on something else. That's what John Wesley meant in part when he started talking about the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is, if you like, the long, repeated and repeated and repeated turn in the direction of Christ. Holiness is like a satellite navigation system that picks up the signal to the home to the destination, to the eternal destination, the place at the end of the race for all people of Christ. And it takes you there. And if there's but a flickering of desire to continue to run that race, the Holy Spirit fans and blows for fear of extinguishing gently and more gently and more gently. Run the race. Our moral integrity in all this is key. But only he can complete our faith. 
Our devoted service in church and out in the world is valuable. But that's not going to complete our faith. Our spiritual experience is illuminating and helps us. But that can't complete our faith. Only Jesus can complete our faith. So today, let's remember certain things with thanksgiving before God. We're not on our own. We're members of a covenant family who bear testimony to the keeping and the resourcing of God. You can do it. It's worth it. And your discipleship now, however flawed and weak and frail, is not ultimately a mistake. And you're not somewhere where no one has ever been before. And they still say to you, you can do it. God is good. It's worth it. And today, among another great cloud of witnesses, in a place which I know for some of you is a holy place, we're invited again and afresh to shed weights, to break from distractions, to leave sins that cling, and put our focus on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.